Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bookcase, Bookcase, Bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I'm Kate Gibson. So put down that book you're reading and take a minute to listen to our podcast. I am so excited about today's episode because the writer that we're talking about is a dear, dear, dear friend of mine from college. And I'll just tell you how we met. My friend Beth introduced us. We shared an apartment, Beth, myself, and the writer we'll be talking to, J. Ryan Straddle. We live together in an apartment in Brentwood, right outside of UCLA. And Jay Ryan was little more than floppy hair and a kid who listened to REM all the time. But I read his writing in college. He wrote a play called Famous People Think Famous Thoughts. Uh, I even love the title. And I fell in love with his writing then. So when he wrote Kitchens of the Great Midwest and A Small Bidding War, broke out for his writing. I was not surprised. I looked at it as more as a promise fulfilled. And he released a second book, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, which was also wonderful. If you aren't reading Jay Ryan's fiction, you really should be. He is a wonderful writer, a very good friend, and he may have the warmest, biggest most full of joy laugh I have ever heard. <laughs> but it's not just because he's Katie's friend that we've asked him to come on this podcast. Those first two books were, as Katie said, the subject of a bidding war among publishers, translated into many languages, and they are delightful books. Kitchens of the Great Midwest came out some years ago, 2015. The Lager Queen of Minnesota, 2019. Both very well received, very well reviewed, on many, many best books of the year lists. Now, you may wonder about the titles because they both relate to um, Food. The things that you take Eat. in. <laughs> Food. To, 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 to consumables, Consumables, shall we say. that's the word I'm looking All for. All right, consumables. good, good. They, <laughs> the first relates <laughs> to food and the second to beer. But it's not about cooking. It's not, the, the books are not about recipes. It's not totally about beer. They are wonderful, wonderful stories that will make you laugh and will make you think. And Jay Ryan is now on course to publish a third book soon. I, I much anticipate it. There is, and I say this with some reluctance, Kate, and I'm sort of interested in your thoughts about it. He is a Midwest writer, but he will not appeal just to people in the Midwest, although I think they will see a Midwest voice here. But his writing is applicable to everybody. But I think there's a little bit, a little bit, of Garrison Keillor in him. I think there is a little bit of Garrison Keillor in him. He writes about the complexity, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more later after the interview, but he talks a lot, he writes a lot about the complexity of the Midwest because the Midwest is, and living there is deceptively simple, but it is a deceptively complex place to be. And he does a wonderful job of writing about it. And one other thing we ask him about, and then we'll get into the talk, because I don't want to preview too much, but one of Jay Ryan's real strengths right out of the gate was writing from a female perspective. And I find that fascinating, given that many male writers would find that too challenging to conquer. Not only does he challenge himself that way, but I think as a woman, he largely succeeds. He grew up in the northern part of Minnesota. And as you will hear, his mother, he says, was the most influential person in his life and the person that encouraged his writing and that he regrets has not lived to see his success. J. Ryan Straddle, S-T-R-A-D-A-L, 
You'll find him in the S section there of fiction in your bookstore. We had a delightful conversation. He is not just Katie's friend, but he's a really good guy. Here's our conversation. Jay Ryan Straddle. Jay Ryan Straddle, uh, Kate and I are delighted to slip you into the bookcase. Let me start by asking you to describe yourself as a writer. What mm. is it that you want to get across to readers? Oh, I love this question. Um, I think I write my best when I'm writing with my whole heart. And I feel like I'm at my desk and I can feel my heart expanding. What I want to communicate as a writer is a lot of what I want to see in the world as a reader. And that is compassionate, intelligent work. I want to read about people who are capable of forgiveness, even amidst extraordinary opposition to its possibility. And I've seen a lot of that in my life. And I, I think we could use a lot of it now. I think one of the things lost in a lot of societal discourse lately is the capacity and need for forgiveness. And it's a preoccupation of mine. And it's something that drives my work. Knowing full well in the past, I, it's been something I've, I haven't always been capable of. So I feel when I sit down to write, I'm trying to write to my better angels. And moreover, also write to my mom, who's no longer with us and never read any of my work. I feel like each time I sit down to write, I'm writing to keep her alive in my heart. I'm writing books that she might have enjoyed reading if she were alive to see them. So in a sense, if I'm writing to a reader, it's her. When you sit down to write, are you a meticulous planner or do the stories and the characters lead you? I know what my ending is going to be before I write page one. So I have a tendency to start really far away from that (laughs) ending (laughs) if I'm writing a novel. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like the cheapest trick in the book, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, you're gonna you're gonna end a novel in a brewery with two sisters reconciling. <laughs> and how about the sister whose brewery it is doesn't even like beer at the beginning? <laughs> the first time she's holding a bottle of beer, she's dumping it down a toilet. How does she end up owning a like running a brewery? That's one way of doing it. But I also want to put my characters in situations where they're going to be challenged in ways they don't expect. I think that's where character is revealed. It's not as simple as taking things away from a character or throwing stones at them and chasing them up a tree, even though those are fine ways of storytelling. I feel like I want to take people like the people I've met in life and demonstrate how they can be extraordinary. Hmm. A lot of male writers, I think, would be intimidated by writing from the female perspective. And yet it's one of your strengths. Has it always been? Have you always wanted to write from that perspective? I think I would have been really intimidated to about 10 years ago, but around then I had a writing instructor named Lou Matthews, who was reading my work at the time. At the time I was writing mostly humorous short stories. And he read them and said, you know, if you ever start writing stuff that really matters to you, your work's going to get a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) And you picked yourself up off the floor and yeah. Mm Yeah, but he was right, of course. And I was writing to distract myself from the fact that my mom died. She'd been the most important person in my life, the reason I'm a writer, the person who educated me uh, in every meaningful way to be a writer. And I was writing to amuse myself and my friends, and that was what I thought I needed for a while. But when I sat down to write to her and write about her, 
characters came out as women. You mentioned your mom and how important she was to you. As you write from the female perspective, are you trying to find your mom's perspective? Yes, that's exactly it, Charles. You write with a really interesting gimmick is, is, a, uh, is a pejorative word. I don't mean it that way, but you write with an interesting twist. A hook? Uh, in, a hook? In your, a hook. In your yeah. first book, for instance, it's a series of stories, and your main protagonist doesn't appear in some of them, but her presence is always felt. And then in the second book, there are three women who are the primary characters in the books. I'm curious, each chapter is a monetary amount, which feeds into the chapter. Is that intentional? Yeah, each of those hooks had a different genesis. Uh, with the first book, I'd intended to write a recipe for a human. Huh. So I thought about the ingredients, literal and figurative, that go into the definitive meal made by such a person. I think I had the genesis for that idea back in about 2009, 2008, when uh, I was at a dinner party thrown by my friend Patty Clark, and I realized that she was the only person at the party who knew all of the attendees. And I thought, how did this interesting group of people come together? Like, what's the story of everyone? How did we all arrive at this table? And I thought, well, I don't, that's a simple enough story to tell. I want to tell a more complicated, meaningful story than that. So I wanted to tell the story of how these people made her who she is, not just how they happened to be eating her food. Hmm. Um, and yeah, and so each chapter became an ingredient that, in essence, also is an ingredient. In, in her in her growth and maturation. The second book I designed as more of a receipt. Like, what's the cost of reconciliation? <laughs> well, yeah, what are the line items in a family's emotional budget? Um, Some of them were expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah one goes over a million, and then a, one chapter is just a yeah, few bucks. Yeah. Way, it's, it's, it varies right. levels at various times. What gave you the audacity to think that you could write for a living. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I guess, you know, audacity is not a word used by Minnesotans a lot. Um, <laughs> I would say it's never I, used by Minnesotans. Yeah. Right. Uh, ironically, perhaps. Um, I'd say my mom, it was always my mom's dream. I don't think I took prose fiction writing seriously to my late twenties. I, I was doing it. But in college, I did a lot of other things. I wrote plays and screenplays and things that were things I felt were easier, but they were useful practice in understanding narrative and storytelling. I think in my heart of hearts, I always wanted to write fiction, but it just seemed too difficult. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the act of sitting down and writing a novel seemed incredibly hard. And spoiler alert, it is. <laughs> As I mentioned, the titles of your books, they're both two specific references, both to the Midwest, Minnesota, and, and Midwest specifically, and then also to kitchens and to, and to lager. Are you a regional writer and are you a food writer? If somebody gets to the S section of the bookstore and sees two novels by Straddle, do they think, gee, this guy's not interesting to me because I live in Arizona or whatever? Or is this guy writing a cookbook? Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind being called either of those things. I don't think I set out to do it specifically. I do feel like to some extent I'm writing for my teenage self who wanted to read more books set in Minnesota in the Midwest and was very hungry for them. Mm. Now it seems like there are quite a few more than there was when I was a kid. Certainly there were authors like John Hassler, you know, Louise Erdrich. I felt like I wanted to represent the 
Minnesotans I knew. And when I sat down to write my first book, I, you know, I knew about the dinner party scheme and I knew how I wanted to end it. But I was very excited about the idea of writing a book set within the world of Midwestern cuisine because I'd never seen one. Do you worry that you pigeonhole yourself with those titles mm. as opposed to exhibiting the universality of interest and of application of your characters and your thoughts? I hope not. And so far, it's been encouraging to hear from readers around the world who haven't been intimidated by those titles, who've looked upon them as an opportunity to explore their curiosity about these places that they may only be slightly, if at all, familiar with. I recently got an Instagram message from a reader in the Philippines ah. who's been passing Lager Queen around. And I thought, that's pretty awesome because uh, I wasn't even aware to what extent that book saturated the Asian market. My first book was translated, I think, into 14 languages, which was surprising enough and quite often with different titles. <laughs> <laughs> and so this issue, Charles, that you imply about, you know, uh, the word Midwest being in the title ended up not being <laughs> such a big issue. Say, say Brazil, where they titled it Eva's Life and Recipes. You know, what was your favorite title, by the way? What was your favorite take oh, on the title? Wow, uh, probably the Italian one, which translates as hot chili for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Fresh, chi fresh chili for breakfast. Fresh chili for breakfast. Right. Yeah. I never thought of that, that you would have to uh, you'd have to change the emphasis of a title to simply appeal to readers in different in different countries. You must have been amazed as a first time author that A, you got the kind of incredible reception that you got, B, that there was a competition among publishers to get the manuscript, to, to, to get the book. I, I was shocked. I was absolutely sure there would be three readers in this book. <laughs> um, well, Me, Kate, I was yeah, one. I was definitely one. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad and my grandma. And it turns out my, my grandma didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> Language. Oh, because there was there was a uh, <laughs> that some of the characters would blaspheme at times. <laughs> yes, yes. But she couldn't, in good conscience, recommend the book to people. Did she, she like said. the second one? Okay. Oh All yeah, right. yeah. Uh, you know, I'm interested. I somehow missed the acknowledgments page, though. I said, "Grandma, you realize that the book was dedicated to you?" And she said, "Where where does it say?" It, like in the very beginning, there's an acknowledgments page, and she's like, "What acknowledgments page?" She said, "Oh, I skip all that stuff. I get right to the good." You know, I was 39 when my first book came out and I'd spent, you know, I, I had written a manuscript earlier in my life that will never see the light of day. I didn't know that. Yeah. When in my late 20s, right around the time my mom died, I started working on a novel. I felt like, oh, I got to get it done. And part of it was also thinking that, oh, I got to write my first book before I'm 30 <laughs> or no one will care. <laughs> I, I suffered under that delusion which I'm really glad I woke up from because that manuscript is absolutely unreadable. And I'm very, very pleased it doesn't exist in the world. I wasn't pleased at the time, though. At the time, I was very confused and frustrated that I couldn't even get a response from agents. But it was instructive. Uh, it was the thing that inspired me to go and start taking uh, classes at UCLA uh, Extension, which is where I met the instructor, Lou Matthews, that I mentioned earlier. Most importantly, I started reading a lot more. I thought, well, if I really want to write contemporary fiction, let's get caught up on it. I mean, I'd always been a reader, but starting around 2009, I started reading everything I could hmm. get my hands on, the world of contemporary fiction. And that was probably the biggest teacher I had. I occasionally teach now, and the biggest issue I run into 
sometimes is running across students who um, want to write in a genre they don't read mm. or read widely <laughs> enough. <laughs> and I think, oh man, it, you got to love it enough to, to know what's, <laughs> you know, to know what you're getting into, to know what's out there, because also you're, you're reacting to it. If you're participating in the culture as a creator, you're part of a conversation. Are you thinking at some point you will write as a Los Angelino, as a made Westerner displaced in Los Angeles? I haven't been compelled to yet. I may. Uh, if there's a perspective on it that I feel is underrepresented, that I have interest in. But yeah, not yet. Uh, I feel like the Midwest made me who I am. And I'm still unpacking a lot of the ways it beat me into the shape I occupy. Um, (laughs) It wasn't always an easy upbringing, but it was also quite often a joyous and interesting one. And I feel I still have a lot to say about it. How has recently becoming a father changed your writing process Mm. and your writing perspective? Oh, wow. Well, it directly inspired the theme of my third book, which is legacy, and thinking about how we don't always want what's passed down. Hmm. I I didn't, and I don't expect my son to. Uh, yet at the same time, I want to create as comfortable and stimulating a world for him as possible. So writing a, a story about a family that's reckoning with just these issues has become very meaningful to me because I go downstairs every day after I'm done working and play with my son. And I think about, are you even going to care that I'm a writer? <laughs> are you going to lie about what your dad does at school to make sound like I do something cooler? Like, Oh, my dad's, my dad's a, a construction worker. You know, like, exactly. Exactly. Like but my son's four, he turned 14 months yesterday and he's really into cars. Like he loves vehicles. He's one of those little boys. And so he might tell people that I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a NASCAR driver or something. So do you have a working title? Yeah, the working title for the third book is Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Well, we will look for that. Jay Ryan, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Add the magic of possibility with the perfect gift for dads and grads. The one for all family of multi-brand gift cards is the best way to say, I get you. Let your loved ones choose from a selection of their favorite restaurants and retail stores. From cards like Cheers to You and Home Sweet Home. Or opt for the One for All Ultimate gift card and let them choose from over 100 brands with no fees. Buy One for All gift cards now at retailers nationwide or at giftcards.com. See giftcards.com for terms and conditions. Add the magic of possibility with the perfect gift for dads and grads. The One for All family of multi-brand gift cards is the best way to say, I get you. Let your loved ones choose from a selection of their favorite restaurants and retail stores. From cards like Cheers to You and Home Sweet Home. Or opt for the One for All Ultimate gift card and let them choose from over 100 brands with no fees. Buy One for All gift cards now at retailers nationwide or at giftcards.com. See giftcards.com for terms and conditions. Add the magic of possibility with the perfect gift for dads and grads. The One for All family of multi-brand gift cards is the best way to say, I get you. Let your loved ones choose from a selection of their favorite restaurants and retail stores. From cards like Cheers to You and Home Sweet Home. Or opt for the One for All Ultimate gift card and let them choose from over 100 brands with no fees. Buy One for All gift cards now at retailers nationwide or at giftcards.com. See giftcards.com for terms and conditions. 
We did our rapid fire questions with Jay Ryan Straddle. I'm beginning to think, Kate, these are not so rapid, actually, but but they're always interesting. Jay Ryan Straddle, the rapid fire questions. Which lesser known book do you recommend the most? Elsewhere, California by Dana Johnson. Author you have read, no matter what the review. Dennis Johnson. Hmm. Why? Oh, what a great soul. I was lucky enough to get to know him uh, the last seven years of his life. And um, what a profound and um, deeply emotional and thoughtful human being. I thought any book that comes out of that man is worth reading. Favorite place to read? Mm, my office. Okay. Have a good chair? Yeah, I have a good chair, but also I, I read on the couch a lot. Like I'm, a, I'm a recumbent reader. Hardback, paperback, Kindle. Oh, hardback. Well, I like to support other authors, so I buy their hardbacks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, longest book you've ever read? Ooh, uh, probably one of the Robert A. Caro books, the LBJ books. Mm. Yeah, probably that. Yeah. Kate's, Kate's mother, my wife, uh, has a saying that if you can't say it in 500 pages, don't say it. <laughs> uh, favorite children's book? Ooh, um, oh, The Things You Can Think by Dr. Seuss. That's my son's favorite book right now, so it's my favorite. And do you, do you have a copy of Goodnight Moon? Uh, oh, yeah. We have Goodnight Moon and Goodnight Loon, the Minnesota var- variation. Absolutely, right? Now, let me ask you this. Was that your favorite book when you were growing up, or has it become your favorite book because it's your son's favorite book? Oh, no. I think my favorite book as a little kid was probably Goodnight Moon, actually. Um, I love the mush. I love books with food in them. Go figure. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, my, my son just lights up when we read him all the things you can think. Just lights mm. up. And I, I love seeing a book give him that reaction. Favorite movie adaptation of a book? Oh, The Godfather. Mm. What better film than book? Most influential book in your life? Oh, wow. Um, as an adult, Jesus' Son uh, mm. by Dennis Johnson. Probably read that the most times, bought it the most, given it to the most people. As a teenager, maybe uh, Fictionist by Jorge Luis Borges. First book I read that greatly expanded my conception of what narrative and storytelling could be. What's a book that you've read over and over that you revisit at different ages? Pale Fire, I just started rereading by Nabokov. I really enjoy that book as well. Boy, there's many of them. Uh, Great Gatsby, I've probably read three or four times, different stages of my life. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. It's supposed to be lightning round, but I could keep going. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah. Um, what are you reading now? Craft in the Real World by Matthew Celesis. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. What books are coming out over the next few months that you're really excited about? Oh, wow. Uh, Shoulder Season by Christy Clancy. I really love Christy. She's a wonderful soul. Great supporter of other writers. I met her because of an essay she wrote in The Sun magazine. I contacted her after reading that essay and I said, how can I help you? Hmm. Do you have Hmm. a book coming out? Anything that I can? And she said, actually, I do have a manuscript. And I said, well, please let me blurb it. And she was like, really? And and she still likes to tell that story. Like, oh, yeah, Jay Ryan wrote me and asked to blurb my book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I said, any writing of yours, I want to help because I thought her son essay was so moving. One of the things I enjoy most about being a writer is using whatever little influencer power that confers to help other people. And And when I read that essay, I thought, oh, wow, uh, w- what can I do? I mean, she, uh, the worst case scenario, she'd write me back and say, like, 
you know what? Screw you. I've read you and I hate your writing. I don't want your help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. She's fine. You know, I still love this essay. Plus, there's an, another book, another debut author from Virginia who wrote a book called Four Dead Horses. And it's set in the world of cowboy poetry. A huge world. <laughs> right. A, a huge, huge world. world. A gigantic it's a, world. Not, like it's a, right. Yeah. But it's a, it's a tremendous microcosm. And so to read this book about it, she sent me some some jam in the mail to try to bribe me into blurbing the book. And I was like, I don't need the bribe. This sounds great. I, I'm in. So. Jay Ryan Straddle, it's great to have you with us. Great to have you in our bookcase. We really yeah. appreciate you joining us. Good to talk to you. And we look forward to Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Terrific. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Jay. You know, I don't think writers are all that capable of giving one-word answers to rapid-fire questions. But in some ways, I, I love, love, love the rapid-fire section just for that reason. It gives us a different way to explore the writer's mind. And Jay Ryan's mind is endlessly fascinating to me. Every time he comes to Minnesota, we spend time together, and I learn something new about him. When he talks about the Midwest, I am a resident of Minnesota now. And I think when you are from one of the coasts, it's easy to think of the middle of the country as flyover states. Minnesota is, yes, it's very cold, but it's a complicated place. And Minnesota nice only tells part of the story. And Jay Ryan, I think, writes beautiful, both loving prose for Minnesota. I think he really loves Minnesota, but I think he also writes great satire of Minnesota, that chapter that he does, you know, on the bars the church ladies in the bars, um, and they're all making their bars and their casseroles. I know those folks, and they are complicated, wonderful people that I live with, but they aren't just simple flyover state folk. And it's something that Garrison Keillor understood very well. And it's something that I think Jay Ryan explores in his writing, because there's a lot to unpack his being from Minnesota. I worry that the, that the titles may put people off thinking that these are books about food or about beer just about those things. They are certainly the backdrop of the novels, but the characters in them are very rich. The emotions, the family dynamics are extraordinarily important in his writing. And he has a wonderful touch for character. All of the characters I felt are, are very well developed. In the first book, which is Kitchens of the Great Midwest, and we alluded to this a little bit, the central character is there, but basically she's just a character in all of the chapters, which are about how people react to her. Yeah, she's a catalyst. She, Her character is drawn and developed through the eyes of others. And, and yes, she's a catalyst. And it's a, it's a very interesting way to approach a novel. And as I say, I've often wondered how surprised he was with his own success, because the first novel just got extraordinary reception. That's not usual for somebody with a first book. I think he was as flabbergasted by the bidding war and the reviews as anybody else. And I'm just so proud of his success. It's well-deserved. Love reading his writing. I love talking to him. He just, he makes me feel good. And his books make me feel good. I really recommend. His new book comes out in April of next year. And I, for one, cannot wait. So if the point hasn't gotten across uh, yet, Katie likes him. <laughs> uh, she's, a, she's a fan. But as I say, this was not a vanity booking because his books really are worth the reading. Or if you listen to them audible, they're certainly worth listening to. And I actually would be interested in listening to I read them both, but mm -hmm. uh, I would be interested in listening to them because I think they would adapt very well 
uh, to an audio uh, book form. As far as being a big fan, you guys can't see me, but I actually have a big foam finger. Jay's number one, <laughs> holding up to the screen. No, I, I'm just kidding. The point's gotten across, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> So we thought, given Jay Ryan's proclivity for writing great books about the Midwest, that it would be good to pair him with an independent bookstore from his home state of Minnesota. So this week we talked to Excelsior Bay Books, and they have some terrific recommendations. So now our conversation with Excelsior Bay. And Anne, I know you're a recent buyer, an owner of Excelsior Bay Books. When did you buy it? Why did you buy it? And what prompted you to get into this incredibly profitable business? <laughs> <laughs> I worked for the previous owners for about 12 years. They taught me everything I know about book selling. They were marvelous employers and they created a really beloved bookstore out in our neck of the woods. And so they offered us a chance to buy the bookstore. And uh, my husband persuaded me that that was something that we really wanted to do. And I decided to trust his, uh, trust his instincts on this. Um, so we, we bought the bookstore in January of 2020. And um, as you know, in March, the wheels fell off the economy and we thought, oh, what have we done? It was brilliant <laughs> um, timing. Brilliant, it was great brilliant timing. timing yeah. Brilliant timing. We, we really thought that we had made the biggest mistake of our lives. But the fact of the matter is everyone in this town that loves this little bookstore decided that they didn't want to see it fail. So, you know, obviously you and your husband went into this business so that you could get a second pool and the his and her Lamborghini set. Uh, offered by Neiman Marcus this Christmas. So, you know, given the fact that you've made so much money, no, seriously, what I'm wondering is like, what was the book or the bookstore that gave you the bug that said, this is what I want to do for a uh, I had been a customer of Excelsior Bay Books and they got to know my reading tastes. And so they called me and said, would you ever be interested in working as a bookseller? I was doing some writing projects at the time. And so I thought, I said, sure, I'll try. And so I just got thrown into the deep end of the pool. But I think when you're a book lover and when you read books and you love to talk to other people about books, it just kind of came naturally. Somebody who's vacationing on Lake Minnetonka comes into mm -hmm. Excelsior Bay Books and says, Anne, mm -hmm. what piece of literary fiction should I read this summer? And you say, like this year, we are really excited about uh, Bonnie Garmus's Lessons in Chemistry. Mm -hmm. This is uh, set in the 1960s, and it is a woman who is not taken seriously for her brains as a chemist. And we just thought that it was a little bit snarky, but rather literary and something that we could all relate to, uh, a heroine that you love to cheer for. So this is one of the books that we're recommending this summer. And we're also recommending Emma Straub's um, this time tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, Emma Straub, I still consider her a fresh young writer, although she has certainly uh, earned her stripes both as a writer and as a bookstore owner. Um, but we think this time tomorrow, time travel is something that sort of interests a lot of people. Um, and we think she has kind of a fresh take on it. And if you could go back and relive a part of your life, would you? And how many mistakes would you make the second time around? Hmm. Uh, so that is a, that is a book that we're recommending this summer. We are also just 
crazy about this. And I yes. know now Williams was on your podcast. Oh. Several of us have read This Is Happiness. And we just, we, so the way I sell this book is they say, oh, that's a little too thick. I said, listen, put yourself in the thrall of an old fashioned Irish storyteller. Don't be in a hurry to get through this book. Let him meander you through this story, and I promise you it is going to be worth the wait. And then the other book that I have sold to young and old, male and female, I put it in their hands, and they go, yeah, I don't know. I don't read that stuff. I'm like, I know. Trust me on this one. If you hate it, bring it back. I'll give you a different book. It's The Boy and His Dog at the End of the World by C.J. Fletcher. Takes place a hundred years after some event has rendered most mammals incapable of reproducing. Fewer animals for food, not enough people to run the world anymore. We meet a 13-year-old boy who tells us the tale. He's never been anywhere but in the island that he lives north of Scotland with his family. And there is a twist. I'm a little bit jaded as a reader. There is a twist that you do not see coming. And it is just a glorious read, an epic adventure, coming-of-age story that is just, everybody comes back to us and says, okay. I loved this book. So that makes me happy when you get to, you know, get people to try something new. I, I Listening to you talk just now, I just want to speak to our readers. This is why I love booksellers. This is why I love booksellers. <laughs> They're storytellers, but they are also story keepers. That's why these interviews are, are as thrilling to me as the talks we have with authors. Excelsior Bay Books in Excelsior, Minnesota. You find it on Water Street. When you're headed up for Lake Minnetonka, right near Minneapolis, and Anne and her husband will be delighted to have you come in. And Woodbeck, thank you very, very much. Good to talk to you. It was such a pleasure. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Keep up the good work. Anne Woodbeck of Excelsior Bay Books in Excelsior Bay, Minnesota, just outside Minneapolis with some recommendations for your summer reading. As always, we want to mention the folks who work on and make this program what it is, whatever it is, and and afterwards, J. Ryan Straddle with a few words to take us off the air. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, E. Ruet Penobi, and Elizabeth Russo. Please support your local independent bookstore. When it comes to winning elections, is it really the economy stupid? Are soccer moms the quintessential swing voter? And does it matter which candidate you'd rather share a beer with? Every election cycle, cliches come easy. But are they right? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.